only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 46. That's found on page 607 in the Blue Bible. In this passage, God is comparing himself to the lifeless idols. And he says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? This is the word of our God who has no equal. Isaiah 46. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save you. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east to the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Matt. When you came in this morning, you should have received a uh, a little outline at the door. If you didn't get one of those and you'd like one, I don't know if there are any left. I hope there are, if there's not. But uh, if if you'd like one, alert an, an usher nearby and... Uh, if the ushers could be looking out for those. Anybody else need one? Okay. Um, Eric's got them if you need them, by the way. Handy deacon. Uh, let's, let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. And we thank you that you have embodied your word in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is uh, the eternal word. And we pray that you would uh, show him to us in your word today and to renew us by your grace. 
And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, a novelist, Tom Wolfe, wrote a book called I Am Charlotte Simmons. And in this book, he traces the story of this uh, valedictorian from a small country town in North Carolina who goes off to college at this fictional university called DuPont. I think he was trying to refer to another university in North Carolina that begins with a D uh, there. But um, she finds at this college, unsurprisingly, like many of us and uh, many, many people we know who go off to college, that life at DuPont is quite different from life in, in rural North Carolina. Uh, she finds that there are uh, that the students there pursue different things than the people that she's grown up with. Uh, students are obsessed with money and with power. Uh, who you know is more important than what you know or how hard you apply yourself. Uh, promiscuity is seen as sort of a badge of, of maturity at college. And uh, the story, un- unfortunately, follows Charlotte as she sort of spirals downward as she adopts all of these values that the people around her have, and she begins to pursue the, the very things that all of her peers are pursuing and desiring and uh, t- with disastrous consequences. Well, the people to whom Isaiah is writing in this passage are in a similar situation. Uh, they are far from home, they're far from the promised land, and they're living in a, in a city called Babylon. And what's important to know about Babylon is that uh, all of their neighbors, they didn't, they didn't share their religion. They serve different gods than the god that they uh, knew. They don't share their values. They don't share the same laws. And all these new living circumstances brought about new temptations for God's people. Uh, they, they were actually new temptations that were dressed up in new clothes, but they'd been temptations all along. Because uh, up to this point in the Bible, Israel has had this persistent uh, problem with what the Scriptures refer to as idolatry. Uh, Ever since their very beginning, uh, they worshipped and served gods other than the God of Israel. And as as we'll see, just like uh, Charlotte, they began to adopt the values of those around them and began to serve the gods of Babylon instead of the Lord. And the question that that Isaiah really wants to pose to the people that he's writing to here uh, is, Will they turn to the Lord and and maintain their trust in Him? Or will they continue to serve these gods in Babylon? Bel and Nebo, as they're referred to in in verse 1. Well, what do Isaiah's 2,800-year-old words to Jews living in Babylon have to do with us living in Fort Worth uh, almost 3,000 years later? Well, we too live in a land that's far from our home. Uh, and, I, and I don't mean that if you grew up outside of Fort Worth and now you're here, but we, we live in a place that is in, very, in, in a lot of ways hostile to the Christian faith. We have people around us who don't share, who don't worship God, and uh, who pursue other things in this world besides God or alongside of Him. Uh, gods, little gods, little g-gods everywhere are vying for our allegiance, vying for our time, vying for our money, saying, follow me, follow us. And often, I, I think if we're honest, the, the, the promises of God and the person of God can seem remote 
irrelevant, distant, and God can even seem absent when, when we hear all of those voices and we're struggling in our life. And he seems a lot uh, less attractive than the visible and the tangible and the, and the immediate things that these other gods promise us. And I think if we're, if we're really honest with ourselves, there, there is a time in our life, and there, or there will be times in our life, when we ask, is all of this really worth it? Is God really better than these things that I could pursue with my life and have them now? And in those times uh, when our hearts are, are secretly and, and intensely longing for something next to God, instead of God, what we need is, is not, a, uh, not a new set of rules. We don't need a new program. But what we need is a fresh vision of who God is. We need to see, be reminded of who our Creator is and who our Redeemer is. And that's exactly what Isaiah does uh, for us this morning. He shows us ways in which God begins to pull our hearts away from these things that we long for so often. And, I, and God does that in three ways in this passage, which I'd like you to see. Uh, the first way that God begins to pull our hearts away from these gods, away from these idols that tempt us, is that he reveals our idols. God reveals our idols. You know, at, at some level, we have all, as I said, trusted in, relied upon, uh, sought after something other than God, something other than the Creator. And in, in Isaiah 1, uh, the verses 1 and 2, uh, Isaiah reveals the weakness of these idols. Look at verse 1. He says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. You see, Bell and Nebo were kind of the chief gods of, of Babylon. They were like Zeus and Hermes, uh, if you're familiar with Greek mythology. And uh, the reason why I think Isaiah singles them out in this passage is that every year on New Year's Eve, they would pick up these statues of Bell and Nebo and they'd carry them through the streets, and everybody would bow down to them and, and pay them homage. And, and what Isaiah's doing is saying, pay attention, folks. Look, look, look at what these gods do. You have to pick them up, and you have to carry them through the street. They can't move themselves. You have to carry them. And then, and then ultimately, when Babylon is destroyed, they're going to be carried out of town on camels and on the backs of donkeys. Are you really going to trust a god like that, that you have to carry? is his message. So he reveals this weakness that, that they're so helpless that we have to carry them. The second thing he does is he reveals the origin of our idols. Where do they come from? But where, do, where do idols originate? Where do they owe their existence? Well, the truth is, we make them. We make idols. Uh, the reason uh, they have to be carried around the city is because they were made by us. Look at verse 6, uh, where he says, in verse 5, he says, To whom will you compare me? And he says, To those who lavish gold from their purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god, and then they fall down and worship. Saying, look, they, they owe their existence to the, to the money in somebody's wallet. If a man didn't come and pony up the cash, they wouldn't even exist. So they're part of this very creation that we have made. Paul says the same thing in Romans 1.23. He says that the essence of, of human rebellion against God is this, that people exchange the glory of God for images made to look like men. They take the Creator 
And in his place, they worship something created, something limited. And the third thing that Isaiah does when he reveals our idols is he reveals the consequences of worshiping idols. Uh, Look at the last part of verse 2. He says that these gods, instead of being able to save from captivity, actually lead into captivity. You see, the great hope was these gods will save us from all of our problems. But what Isaiah says is, no, they actually deliver you into more problems. And uh, this image of captivity is something that uh, the Scriptures consistently refer to as God's judgment against sin. Listen to Amos chapter 9. It says, And if they go into captivity before their enemies, that is Israel, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. So captivity is, is a sign that where idols go is into, is into God's judgment. And what Isaiah wants the people to see here is that idol worship is not something insignificant. It's, it's, it's easy to think that this is something that happens inside of us, and it's, or it's, it's not like murder or theft or anything like that. But Isaiah wants us to see this is serious. It leads to God's judgment and his wrath. But, again, what does that have to do with us? I mean, my guess is that most of you don't have shrines in your homes. Uh, You don't have statuary and images that you bow down to every morning. You don't know Bell and Nebo, and you you certainly don't worship them. But So what does idolatry have to do with us? How can I say that we're just like Israel and that we worship other gods? Well, uh, while Isaiah's words certainly include worshiping statues, idolatry is much, much more than that. Listen to Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, uh, what, how he defines idolatry. Listen to this. He says, An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, If I have that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Many of you, I, I'm sure, have heard the story uh, that just came out this week about the uh, mayor in Capel, just north of the airport, Jane Peters. Uh, Just this past Tuesday, uh, it's alleged that she um, shot her 19-year-old daughter and then took her own life uh, shortly thereafter. And uh, it's it's a tragic, tragic story. And uh, as many in the community are saying, how could this possibly happen? How could the mayor of the city in an affluent community who appears to have it all together, how could she wind up there doing something like that? Well, as, as the details of the story have begun to unfold through some of the notes that she left and some of the things that they've been able to piece together, it Uh, It's come out that uh, her husband died in 2008, Uh, tragically. uh, Her financial situation as a result had crumbled and was beginning to to show that she didn't have enough money or her house was foreclosed on. Um, And she was being questioned regarding the potentially improper use of a city credit card to kind of patch up the the financial uh, problem that she had. Now, these are serious things, of course. People will say, boy, those are awful things and understandable that someone would be upset with that. But what what happened, however, is that 
it appears that, that life had been built on top of those things, that life had been defined by those things. And she had said, as long as I have these things, then, I, then life is worth living. But when the, those very things that formed the foundation began to crumble and began to be taken away, there was nothing left to live for. There was nothing left to, be, uh, to, to continue on for. And friends, that's a, that's a tragic and, and, uh, and extreme example of, of what happens when we take created things in this world that were never meant to bear the load of our life and we put them at the center of our life and we say, I must have these in order to live. What is it for you? Is it a a certain income level? A certain body type? Acceptance into a particular group at school or or at work? A certain family size or a certain family makeup? A, A romantic relationship? A husband, a wife, a zip code, a car? Respect from others that you must have? It could be any of these good things that God's given us that we, that we begin to rely upon. But how can we know if we're worshiping an idol? How, I mean, if I asked you, what do you worship? You'd never say, well, I worship this or that. You'd always say, I worship the Lord, of course. But how can we know if we really are depending our, uh, basing our lives on these things? Well, the, the first thing is, is that we, uh, idols are revealed more by what we do than by what we say. Uh, we'll almost never say that we worship those things, like I said, but uh, when we want a particular kind of life and we don't get it, we get bitter, we get sullen, we treat those around us poorly because we don't have what we really want. Uh, when our family members mistreat us, we, instead of relying upon the Lord and going to Him in prayer and asking Him to change us and them, we rely upon our own skills of manipulation or anger to get them to, to, to mold them into what we really want them to be. Uh, Second, idols are revealed uh, by where we spend our resources. Where do you spend your money? Or perhaps too much money. (laughs) Because there, your money's just going to flow effortlessly to where your heart is. It's it's what you spend your money on most easily. Where do you spend your time? What do you spend your, your most effort on? What will you stay up late into the night to do? Secondly, or thirdly, idols are revealed by what we think. It's not something that merely is something that we do, but it's something we think. Where, when your mind is idle, when it's not thinking of anything else, where does it instinctively go? Where, where do you, you don't have to make effort to think about it. It just goes there. What do you dream about? What keeps you up at night, keeps you from sleeping because you're thinking about it so much? Friends, if we honestly ask those questions and honestly examine ourselves, we will all find that we all have idols in this life that we depend upon. And if we do, we're in the same place as Israel, deserving God's judgment and his captivity. That's where we are. But this passage, friends, is much more, about, much more than a revelation of our idolatry. It's much more than just pointing out where we've worshipped other gods. It's ultimately a message of hope, For those who are tired of carrying idols around, those who are tired of building their life on things that can't support them and can't sustain them. Which brings us to the second way in which God begins to move our hearts away from idols, and that is that God replaces our idols with himself. God replaces our idols with himself. You see, in spite of all their idolatry, for which the Lord could have just cast them off, the Lord comes to his people in grace and mercy and says, 
he reminds them of who he is and what he's done for them. Uh, look in verses 3 and, 3 and 11 and verse 8. Uh, he gives only two commands in this whole passage, two imperatives. And that is, listen and remember. Listen to me, he says, and remember. Well, what does he want his people to listen to and remember? Well, first he wants them to remember his faithfulness. Remember his faithfulness. Look at verses 3 and 4. In verse 3 he says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. You see, the idols that Israel worshipped had to be carried around through the streets. But God says, Remember this, Israel, I was the one who called Abraham out of Ur. I was the one who brought you out of Egypt. I was the one who sustained you in the wilderness. I was the one who gave you David and Solomon and the land. I was the one who gave you Joshua and all of the land. I, through all of your history, I have been the one carrying you. You don't carry me. You carry idols, but I carry you. And not only that, he says that this care will continue throughout their, their entire life. Despite their idolatry, he says, even till you have gray hairs, I'm going to carry you. You see, we naturally think that the older that we get, the less that we need other people, the more self-sufficient we ought to be. And we're right in thinking that in many ways, because yeah, I mean, Lisa and I are, are, have the goal of training uh, our kids to one day not need us anymore, hopefully. Uh, you know, if, if Liam at 35 is still uh, hanging on my pant leg and wanting to be carried around as much as he is now, there's going to be serious problems in the Waller home. Uh, but, uh, so we, we're, we're right to train our kids to, to depend upon them to, to become self-sufficient. But when we take that same principle and we shift it to the vertical and we, and we think that the older that we get, the less we need the Lord. Say, I'm old, I don't, I don't need to be carried carry my own weight. We go wrong. God promises that he will carry us throughout our entire life until we're old. The second thing he wants uh, Israel to remember is his uniqueness. You see, while they lived in, a, in an age where many people, many uh, uh, gods made claim to divine power, God cuts through the fog of all that. All the fog of the claims of the false gods, and he says, I am God and there is no other. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, that I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. You see, God is not going to be satisfied being one God among many. He doesn't want to be part of our pantheon that we carry around. He is, is God alone. And I want to speak for a minute to, to some of you who may not be Christians or uh, uh, may not be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there's a popular belief in our day that, uh, that there are many legitimate religious options, that there are many uh, gods, uh, all of which have their place in our society and in our lives, and the Christian God is just one of those. And if you worship him, that's great, but that we shouldn't uh, tell people that he's the only one. But I want, you to, I want you to notice that that's not something that just Christians say because uh, that's not something that Christians say because uh, 
is something we made up, that we want to be mean and be ex- exclusive. But it, we're simply saying what the Bible says. The Bible says right here, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And so the Bible doesn't allow us to hold a position that there are many re- legitimate religious options, but God is unique. God is the only one who is God. I, I don't know about you, but it seems that uh, every commercial that I see on TV is a, um, a wireless commercial. You've seen many of them, right? Verizon, AT&T, and uh, they're all vying for our time and our money and, and uh, our minutes that we use. And one of them, uh, as annoying as they can be, uh, one of the ads, uh, I've appreciated the tagline, which is this. When you compare, you know the end of it? There is no comparison. When you compare, there is no comparison, they say. I won't tell you which one it is. Uh, But, friends, the the road away from idolatry, the road away from a life serving lesser gods, does not begin with our effort. It does not begin with what we do. It does not, it's not simply a matter of sort of adding the Christian God, another brick to our backpack of gods that we carry around throughout our life. It's not a matter of adopting a new religious self-improvement program, a new set of laws, a new set of, uh, of, of things to do. And that's what this world will tell you that religion is about, and especially Christianity. They'll tell you that it, that it goes like this, the formula is like this. Man serves God so that God will serve man. Man does things for God, and then God sort of pays him back and does in return for him. But friends, the road away from idolatry, the road away from serving other gods, involves listening and remembering that you do not do things for God so that he will do things for you. But God serves you so that you might serve him. God serves you. God carries you so that you might serve him. And if that sounds striking and blasphemous, then you're beginning to understand Christianity. You're beginning to understand the scandal that is the cross of of Jesus. And in a sea of voices, they're going to tell you when when you're uh, tempted, when when you feel guilty, when you feel these idols weighing your life down, they're going to tell you, these are the things you must do. These are the things you must carry. These are the steps you must take to get out of this. When Christianity, folks, the Lord God says, I have made you, I will carry you, I will save you, I will be your God, I am God and there is no other, I am God and there is none like me. I carry you, you don't carry me. Friends, how often do you remember that? How often do you listen to God's voice when he tells you that? How often do you talk about these things with your family, with your friends? How often are you being reminded of, of how good God is and how faithful He is and how unique He is? He is the one who carries us, friends. And when we compare Him to our idols, when we, when we put Him in the scales and we say, let's compare God to these dead idols, we'll find that there is no comparison whatsoever. God's faithfulness and His mercy have the power to drive away any even the most persistent idols in our lives. So first, God reveals our idols. 
And then he replaces them with this staggering vision of this faithful God who carries his people through all of their, all of their hard times. But how does God actually carry us? How does God, how does this holy and, and righteous and perfect God carry people whom he calls transgressors, hard of heart, people who are carrying idols around the streets? How does a holy God carry sinners like that? Well, the brings us to our third point, which is God redeems us from our idols. God redeems us from our idols. See, it's not enough for God to just promise to be our God. It's not enough for Him to just promise to carry us. A promise is no good without a fulfillment. And we make promises all the time that we can't fulfill, but it's no good without actually making good on it. And so right after declaring that He is this God this unique God, he says, here's how I'm going to carry this plan out in history. Here's, here's how I'm going to prove that I am God and there is no other. Uh, he, he points him to this plan. At, look at verses 10 through 13. Uh, God says, He is the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, who says, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, and who calls a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from a far country. What is that about? Who's who's the bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country? Well, Isaiah here is referring to someone that he mentions back in chapter 45, verse 1. So if you flip back just one page, you'll see that he's talking about King Cyrus of Persia. King Cyrus of Persia whom he says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. So this is a prophecy that one day God is going to send this King Cyrus to to Babylon to liberate his people from their oppression. And uh, sure enough, uh, in 538 B.C., Cyrus did just that. He walked into Babylon, took it without even a battle, And he freed the people of Israel, and he sent them back to the promised land. In fact, he actually read Isaiah when he got there. And saw his name in there, 150 years after the fact. Um, And you can read the story of their restoration in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But why is it important that we know about Cyrus, this Persian king? (laughs) It's important to know that uh, Cyrus was an unlikely deliverer. He was uh, was not a Jew, and and he uh, didn't even exist when Isaiah was writing this. Uh, And he wouldn't even deliver the people of God out of a sense of obedience to God. He didn't know God, and so he didn't. He wasn't. It wasn't as though he, God, had asked him to do it, and he was obedient. It was sort of unwitting. But however unlikely it seems, God says, "Will you trust this one deliverer that I'm going to send you? Will you trust this redeemer, however unlikely he may look?" Well, how does this 3,000-year-old prophecy of King Cyrus apply to us? Is Cyrus the one that we're supposed to be looking for? Well, no. This passage, friends, gives us a faint picture, an outline, a shadowy sketch of our own unlikely deliverer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so by way of both comparison and contrast, God here is showing us that he, will send a, that he has sent a deliverer to us to save us from our idols, 
You see, uh, like Cyrus, Jesus was a king, anointed and chosen by God, that was part of God's perfect plan to work out in history. And Jesus, like Cyrus, was an unlikely hero. Think about the way Jesus was received by uh, the Jews of his day. He was rejected, he was questioned, he was mocked. uh, People didn't understand what he was talking about. They ran him out of their towns. And ultimately, they delivered him up to be crucified because he was not seen as as a fit king to rule over these people. Yet, friends, it's there that the similarities between Cyrus and Jesus begin to break down. Because unlike Cyrus, who who didn't believe in the Lord and who was an idolater just like us, Jesus lived a perfect life, completely free from idols. He never worshipped any other God besides the one true God. And friends, if you're a Christian and you trust in Christ, that perfect life of idol-free worship is yours. God sees you as having perfectly worshipped him your entire life, never bowing your heart or your knee to another God, ever. And the second thing that, the second difference between Cyrus and Jesus is that Cyrus could deliver people from Bel and Nebo. Cyrus had the power to deliver people from the oppression in Babylon. But Cyrus did not have the power Nor does he have the power to deliver us from the wrath of God that is due to us for worshiping idols our entire life. No mere man has the power to save us from that. But friends, the Son of God does have the power to do that. And the Son of God came exactly to do that, to deliver us from the weight of God's wrath. Just a few chapters later, Isaiah would say this of another servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. He would say, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And then he says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, how does God carry you? Because the Son of God carried a cross to the top of a hill outside Jerusalem. And there he carried the weight of God's wrath against our sin against all of our idolatry, against all of our disobedience, and he carried it all the way to the grave, and he left it there. And that's how God carries us. So friends, when when by grace God reveals idols in your life, when he exposes them and you see them there for what they are, you're going to be tempted to despair. You're going to be tempted to say, why can I not kick this idolatry habit? But in those moments, friends, I want you to compare them to your God. I want you to compare those idols to this God. I want you to compare the idols who cannot move to the God who is swift to save you, who has carried you from the womb. I want you to compare these idols who can't hear you, who can't hear anything you say, they can't hear your prayers, to the God who hears you because Jesus intercedes for you at God's right hand. I want you to compare these dead idols to the God who is alive, who knows you, 
and who will carry you even until your old age. And may God give us the, the strength and, and the wisdom and the grace to uh, repent of our idolatry, to turn away from them, and to turn to Christ in faith and be saved. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we give you praise and thanks that uh, you carry us and not we you. You redeem us and not we ourselves. Lord, we repent and acknowledge that we are an idolatrous people. We are tempted at, all, at every turn by the uh, wooing of this world who would have us follow them. But we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus cleanses us from our wicked ways and from our idolatry and equips us to follow you and you alone. Give us the strength to do just that by your grace and mercy, and we pray that you would carry us to the new heavens and the new earth. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?